Dr. Jean Cunningham. Thank you very much. You know, it's always a great privilege for me to come back to the place where I got my head right in the Word. Uh, when I came in here, I was a confused um, young Bible college student, and uh, I always remember coming and listening to John teach, and it was like he was violating so many things because I was all tied up in legalism and a lot of taboos and this and that. And uh, he took me in his office over in the next building there. Of course, this building wasn't even here. And uh, sat down and began to talk to me and began to open my eyes to the meaning of the grace of God. And that was the greatest contribution to my life in addition to all of the other doctrinal truths that he taught me. But uh, this has always been home to me. And uh, this church sent Nan and I out in 1976. And we went off to Arkansas for 20 years and from Arkansas to Australia for 10 years, and then amazingly God brought us back to Arizona, which was always our hope, and we never thought it would ever become a reality. But here we are. So it's wonderful to greet you, and uh, I do want to say we have uh, kept in mind your trials as you've gone through your search for a pastor. I know that God has the right man for you, and uh, just encourage you, hang in there, stay faithful, don't lose heart, because the right shepherd will be brought to you in the due course of time. I wanted to talk to you this morning about the first and the last Christmas. I mean, obviously, with Christmas next Sunday, uh, this would be a typical uh, title or uh, topic, at least, for us to look at Christmas in some sense. But I wonder if you've ever considered the first and the last Christmas. That's what we want to look at this morning. And we're actually going to uh, have to go to a few different passages. I hope you have your Bible. This is a Bible church, right? hope you have your Bible with you. I know it's becoming common for people to go to church and they always put the verses up. Uh, if I were pastoring a church, I would ban that because basically it teaches the people not to use their Bible. You need to know how to use your Bible. You need to know how to find the books and the verses in the Bible. So hopefully you have your Bible with you and we're going to exercise our fingers a little bit this morning. Before we do, let me pray once again because I always stand in such great need as I stand before you for God to sanctify and separate and purify my mind, my mouth, for the message that will bring honor and glory to his Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So join me in prayer, and then we'll get into our study. Now, Heavenly Father, as we have gathered together this morning to worship, to honor, and to glorify your Son and our Savior, and ultimately you, to learn your word, to grow in grace and in truth, to be edified and to edify one another, all of these things and so many more, dealing with the needs of each and every person who is here Father, you know the burdens, you know the trials, the questions, the difficulties that each and every person who has gathered this morning may be going through. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can accomplish what you have planned from eternity past for us this day. And so, Father, it is our prayer that we will humble ourselves, that we will clear the decks of our soul, that we will set aside the distractions and demands of life, that we will open our eyes and our ears and be receptive to the message that the Spirit has for each and every one of us this morning. Open now your word to us. Let it come to us in great power and life-changing effect. We ask these things in the name of our marvelous Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to read just a little bit further, if you will, in Luke chapter 2, starting again in verse 8. There's a very interesting phrase in verse 8 that I'm going to emphasize and build on. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. 
Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were greatly afraid. I'm sure had we been there, we would have been terrified. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Uh, That would probably better be translated goodwill to those with whom he is pleased. Obviously, his goodwill was directed to all in sending Christ to die for us. And so it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. That news, of course, would have gone out through the entire land of Israel. And all those who heard it marveled at those things that were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept these things and pondered them in her heart. Mary was a meditator. We have lost the art of meditation. I've done two conferences now on the biblical art of meditation to something that we need to regain. Uh, The weird thing to me is that when I do a conference on meditation and I tell people I'm doing a conference on meditation, they start rolling their eyes like, oh, what are you going to do, yoga? And they don't even realize that meditation began with God's people. Not in the East, not with the yogas, not with all the other stuff. They stole it from us, by the way, as they stole Christmas from us. I'm going to tell you about that in just a moment. Verse 20, then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them. I want to call your attention to a phrase and maybe spark a few questions in your own mind. It says in verse 8, in the same country there were shepherds living out in the fields. When we talk about Christmas and we talk about the time of the birth of our Lord and Savior, one of the arguments that contradicts the statement of Scripture here is it couldn't have been in midwinter because no shepherds would be keeping their flocks in the field in midwinter. Well, I'm about to shake that whole idea up. And that brings us to a question. The question is, is Christmas something Christians adopted from the pagans? This is what we're told. We adopted their festival that they had, some uh, refer to it as Saturnalia, uh, and others talk about the uh, equinox and so on and so forth, and we really just kind of adopted what they were doing, and we brought it into the Christian church. Uh, Is that actually the case? I would encourage you, you might want to write this down, Uh, there is a guy on YouTube called Patristics, that's spelled P-A-T-R-I-S-T-I-X, Patristics with an X, does an excellent job of answering The question, did we steal Christmas from the pagans, and is the Christmas tree, we don't have one here, many churches think to have a Christmas tree would be blasphemous, all because we don't know our history. So here's a little bit of history. Going back to Luke chapter 1, you don't need to turn there, but you'll remember the annunciation of Gabriel to Mary that she was going to bear the Christ child. And when the early church began to consider celebrating some of these things. The first thing they celebrated was the date of the Annunciation. To this day, the Annunciation of Gabriel to Mary is considered to have taken place on the 25th of March. That goes all the way back to the end of the second century. Some of the people who would have established that moment or that day of worship would have probably known the apostles. So very, very early, they celebrated the 25th of March as Annunciation. Now, 
I'm sure that they were not as highly trained and tech-savvy as all of us, but there's one thing they did know. Jesus Christ was the perfect son. Mary would have a perfect pregnancy, and therefore she would have a perfect time of carrying the Christ child, and they simply logically carried it back six months, or forward, if you will, six months to the time of the 25th of December for the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how it came about. That was why it was adopted. It was only later that the pagans began to worship Saturnalia, which was to their god, Saturn. What about the Christmas tree? Where did the Christmas tree come from? Well, the Christmas tree actually developed later in the 8th century. In the 8th century, a missionary by the name of Boniface went into Germany, and the story that you and I are told is that the pagans worshipped the Christmas tree, and we stole the Christmas tree from the pagans. Well, we have a problem with that, and the problem is really multifaceted. The pagans, when you talk about the pagans, you're talking about hundreds of different pagan religions. When you go all the way from the Middle East up into and through Europe and into Scandinavia, you're talking about hundreds of pagan religions that worship hundreds of different gods and, of course, hundreds of different trees. Bonavus went into Germany, and in Germany they worshipped not the pine tree, not the fir tree, they worshipped the oak. The oak was seen as a symbol of strength. It was a symbol of sturdiness and stability. And so they worshipped the oak, and they feared the oak. They feared that the oak had certain demonic powers. Well, Boniface was not going to allow this to happen, so one day he showed up at one of their worship services with a sharp axe. And he said, I'm going to chop this tree down, and I'm going to show you that there is no power in this tree... And so he chopped the tree down and they all were standing by waiting for the demonic powers, whatever gods they worshipped, to attack Boniface and take him out. And of course, nothing happened. The result was many of them forsook the worship of the oak tree, but the tradition tells us that in the place of an oak, of the oak that was chopped down, a fir tree grew up. Christians then adopted the symbol of the fir or the pine, usually uh, different uh, ones, different places, and they attached to it these... Um, ideas or these symbols. Number one, it points up. It's pointing people to heaven. Number two, it has a triangular shape and therefore is a picture of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Number three, it is evergreen and therefore it's a symbol of eternal life. And so that's how it was actually brought in. And again, if you go on YouTube, uh, you can get a lot more information. I've only skimmed the surface of a couple of those things. Last and not least, that fir tree or pine, as I say, sometimes different ones, different places, was adopted by your forefathers and mine. At the beginning of the Revolutionary War, our forefathers were students of many early writers. As a matter of fact, they studied 5,000 years of history to come up with the best way to establish a new nation on this earth. But in their studies, one of the guys that was a very strong influence on them was a guy by the name of John Locke. And John Locke did two treatises on human government. And he talked about how people need to influence their government. What is the role of government? How does government become abusive? And what do people do when that happens? And as a last resort, he said, when the government no longer responds to the people, when the people have lost control over their government, they have only one recourse left, and that is to make an appeal to heaven. The last resort is to turn to God in prayer. And so George Washington, at the beginning of the Revolutionary War, came up with a flag. And you may see some of these flying around. We see a few in Prescott. And it's a white flag with a pine tree. And under the pine tree it says, an appeal to heaven. What that's telling you is that there are people today who understand that we are in a very similar situation as a nation. 
as we were at the time of the revolution, and we need to begin to cry out to God to deliver our nation. So all of those things are a part of bringing us to this point where we're celebrating Christmas and looking at the first and the last Christmas. The first Christmas obviously being the one when Jesus came. Come back with me to verse 8 and the phrase, there were shepherds living out in the fields. The word that is used here, agraleo, is only used in this place in the New Testament. It's not found anywhere else. It's a very interesting word. It's a present active participle which indicates that this was their habitual practice. In other words, they always lived in the fields. They weren't just in the fields for a little while. They weren't in the fields because this was a special occasion. That was their home. These shepherds were the shepherds that raised the lambs that were sacrificed in the temple. But again, why was there permanent residence in the field? Even to this day, if you go to Israel and the guides will lead you to the area outside of Bethlehem, and it's called the shepherd's fields. Why were they there? Why was that their permanent residence? I want to give you a quick lesson through scripture that will tie together things possibly you've never seen before. I'm not going to have you turn to every passage. You may want to jot these down or you'll be able to listen to the lesson later if you'd like to jot these down and look them up. Going all the way back to Genesis, and in this first and last Christmas study, we're going to go from Genesis to the book of Revelation, the entirety of Scripture, to pull it all together. We start by going back to Genesis chapter 35. And you'll remember the very sad story of Jacob and Rachel, and Rachel has had a child. And she died in childbirth, and as she was dying, she named the child, do you remember the name? Ben-Ani, son of my sorrow. And later, Jacob changed the name to Benjamin, or Benjamin, which means the son of my right hand. The son of sorrow became the son of the right hand. From the very beginning, we see a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the reason I refer you to this particular passage is that after Rachel died and Jacob in his grief buried her, he traveled a little bit further and he pitched his tent at a very interesting place. And in Genesis 35, verses 19 through 21, we find that he pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. The Tower of Eder. Why is that important? Because Eder means the flock. And it's actually picked up later in a prophecy in Micah chapter 4 and verse 8, which says, O Tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, or to you he shall come. And this, of course, will connect with our passage in Luke because as we read later on Jewish tradition made this tower the destined birthplace this is long before Christ came into the world the Jewish rabbis were teaching where this tower was set up who set it up we don't know but going all the way back now to the time of Abraham 2,000 years before Christ a tower was erected and the Jewish rabbi said this tower was erected on the site where the Messiah would ultimately come very very interesting Jerome in the 4th century saw in this tower the foreshadowing of the announcement of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ to the shepherds, the ones that kept living in the fields. Very interesting. Today it answers to a place called Kerbet Sir El Ghanim, which is called the Ruin of the Sheepfold. It's very interesting that archaeologists have gone to this place and they have found uh, all kinds of Christian uh, Arches, remains, uh, different things showing that very, very early on this was a place of worship, this Tower of Adair. If you'll open your Bible with me to First Chronicles, we'll follow this a little bit further because we meet a very interesting individual in First Chronicles. 
in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, and as we go along, you're going to wonder why some of these things even connect, but I hope as we go along, it'll become more and more clear that there is a connection. You may have heard of this guy. Someone wrote a book about him in 1 Chronicles chapter 4. In verse 9, we read, Now Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. His mother called him Jabez, saying, Because I bore him in pain. Kind of a rough name to give to a kid because it basically means he causes pain. My mom could have named me that. I'm sure that would have fit. She always said out of ten kids, I gave her most of her gray hairs. Verse 10, Jabez called on the God of Israel. Now this is a noble, honorable man according to Scripture. And he prays, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me, that you would keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. I don't want to live up to my name. We have to understand that in Hebrew thought, the name your parents gave you was actually the name God already had planned for you before you were born, and it describes your character. We see that playing out a lot in Scripture in the names that are given to people. Jabez did not want to live up to his name. He did not want to be a source of pain. And then it says, and so God granted him what he requested. He requested God's blessing for enlarged territory. The book that I referred to, uh, which has got some good stuff in it, but it's got some bad stuff too, says this is the prayer that God always answers. And if you pray this prayer every morning, God is going to prosper you and you are going to become wealthy and on and on and on down the line. Of course, that's where it goes off the rails. Jabez was not praying for territory. When he prayed that God would enlarge his territory or enlarge his holdings, he was an honorable man. He was a noble man. He was thinking in spiritual terms. Which would you rather have, a big ranch or eternal impact? You know, before I left Westside to go back to Arkansas, I was offered the job managing a ranch up on the other side of the mountains from Black Canyon. The ranch was 80 sections. The, the, uh, what we would call the headquarters of the ranch was a log cabin on a running stream surrounded by beautiful, huge cottonwood trees, and it would have been the dream of my life. I could go manage that ranch and live the life I dreamed of, or I could go to Arkansas where I did not want to go and pastor a church. What would you rather have? Would you rather have holdings in this world, or would you rather have impact in history and reward in eternity? Jabez was praying for something much, much bigger than most people think of. Now, how do we know that God answered this prayer, and why in the world would this relate to the shepherds in the field? Well, if you just slide over to 1 Chronicles chapter 2, and 1 Chronicles chapter 2 is very interesting because we meet a lot of interesting people. In verse 11, we meet Boaz, and you know Boaz married Ruth, and you know that they were in the lineage of the Messiah. And then, of course, we come to 1 Chronicles 2 and verse 54. The sons of Salma were Bethlehem. That's where the name of the village came from. The Netophathites, uh, Atroth, Beth, Joab, half of the uh, Manahathites and the Zorites, and this is the important part, forget all the ites, Verse 55, the families of the scribes who dwelt at a village named for the guy we just looked at, Jabez. A village named Jabez, where the Tirathites, the Shimeathites, the Succothites, who were of the Kenite, you know the Kenites were not Jews, they came from Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, who came from Hamath, the father of the house of Rechab. Now, I know you think that we've already lost the trail, but we're actually just closing in on it. The Tower of Eder, which stood just outside the village that later is called Bethlehem, was the site later of a village. I have all kinds of, I've got files this thick on all this stuff that I'm trying to give you in a few short moments. 
But I can tell you this, Jabez's prayer began by a village being named for him near the Tower of Adair. The, the village's name was Jabez. And who were there? Kenites, not Jews, but Kenites who later actually married into the Levitical uh, priesthood and the Levitical tribe. And what were they? Notice the important words here. Scribes who dwelt at Jabez. What was the job of the scribe? The job of the scribe was to copy the scriptures, to study the scriptures, and to teach the scriptures. The beginning of the answer to Jabez's prayer was a group of people, not even Jews, but proselytes, who came in because of faith, and they became the leading Bible scholars of their time. Now, one other thing I want to point out to you is that they were of a particular type of people. It tells us at the end of the verse that they were of the house of Rechab. The word Rechab actually means rider or chariot rider. And we're going to meet one of their notable people as we move on. Turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah 35, where we'll begin to see a little bit more connection with what's going on here. In Jeremiah 35, and I'll allow you to read the chapter on your own, but there was a group of people that Jeremiah went to, and Jeremiah wanted to use these people as an example to the children of Israel of what faithfulness looked like. So if you'll just pick up with me, Jeremiah is told in verse 2, Go to the house of the who? Rechabites. Who were the Rechabites? Well, there was a village where they were scribes, and now we're talking about 1,500 years later, the prophet Jeremiah is told to go to these people for a certain reason. Bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. So Jeremiah said, I took Jezaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of who and who and who, will go on and on and on, his brothers and all his sons, the whole house of the Rechabites. I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah. They really get into the genealogies here. A man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, above the chamber, and so on and so forth. I set, verse 5, before the sons of the house of the Rechabites, bowls full of wine and cups, and I said, drink wine. Jeremiah is doing what God commanded him to do. Say, all right, pour me a drink. Verse 6, but they said, we will drink no wine for Jonadab, the son of Rechab. Once again, keep this linked back there to 1 Chronicles. Our father commanded us saying, you shall drink no wine, you nor your sons forever. That was not the only requirement he placed on them, however. Verse 7 says, you shall not build a house or sow seed or plant a vineyard nor have any of these. All your days you shall dwell in tents that you may live many days in the land where you are Sojourners. The Rechabites through all their generations became shepherds and lived in tents. And as we come down to Jeremiah's commendation of these people, he says in verse 16, Surely the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father which he commanded them, but this people, meaning Israel, God says, has not obeyed me. They've obeyed their earthly father. You guys haven't even obeyed your heavenly father. That's what he's saying. Verse 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the doom that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them, but they have not heard. I have called to them, but they have not answered. And Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you, therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab the son of Rechab shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. 
Can you connect this unique group of people who took a vow that they would always remain nomads and shepherds who were linked to the village that once stood slightly outside of Bethlehem all the way down to the shepherds that ultimately stood before the Lord according to this promise. He will not lack a man to stand before me. By the way, the phrase stand before me has a priestly connotation. But my conviction is that these shepherds were living in the same place they had always lived, lived in the same way they had always lived, were doing the same thing they had always done, continued to remain students of God's word, obviously, and they were the first ones that were invited to meet the Savior as he entered the world. That's pretty amazing, but it's not as amazing as what happened and what they witnessed. You know, Paul captures the first Christmas in a way that the simple story can't. We love the story in its simplicity, in its oriental beauty, in the poverty of Joseph and Mary, who when they gave the offering for their son eight days later, gave two turtle doves, which was a special provision for those who are extremely poor. And it's so amazingly beautiful, but it doesn't come close to capturing what that little child represented. When Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to cling to or a thing to grasp. But he made himself of no reputation and came in the form of a man and being found in existence as a man, he humbled himself even further unto death, even the death of the cross. That all began right here. That was that huge step that our Savior took from his throne in heaven down into this world full of sin, sorrow, and suffering for what? To live a life of rejection, a life misunderstood, a life of slander and maligning, and ultimately to go to the cross for you and I to pay the penalty for our sins. And not just for ours, but as John tells us, for the sins of the entire world. We should stand as we do today, preparing to celebrate Christmas with the, I don't even have words to describe it, awe, reverence, amazement, humility. Our soul should be struck with the beauty but also the grandeur and the greatness of everything that our Savior has done for us. Chad asked a very good question, and it fit right in with what we're studying. Are we preparing for this Christmas looking for his second coming? Well, that relates to the last Christmas. Let's just go a little bit further. We've seen a few things about the first Christmas, and I wish I had time, as I say. I've got files and files and files on all of these things, but we don't have time, of course, to cover everything we'd like and... You know, as a Bible teacher, it's the thing that we always wrestle with. How much can I cover in the time that I'm given? And will what I'm able to cover uh, be able to make sense to people who come and who listen? The first Christmas was celebrated in a stable. We say that the baby was laid in a manger. We've been there and we've seen what those mangers are. They're actually stone feed troughs. So laid in a stone feed trough, probably with a little bit of uh, hay thrown in uh, amidst the livestock meandering around uh, the bleats of the goats and the baying of the sheep and the mooing of the cows and the probably ca- uh, the crowing of the rooster. And I mean, it would have been chaos, right? But what about the last Christmas? You ever stop and think that next Sunday we might celebrate our last Christmas on this earth? Because somewhere along the line, our Lord is coming. And I don't know if you have the sense I have, but I feel that the stage of this world has been set for the tribulation. As I read through the opening of the seals in Revelation chapter 6 and I see the four horsemen, 
being unleashed on the world. What I see is the fulfillment of everything that's begun in this world in the last two or three years. Somewhere along the line, the nations of the world have gathered themselves together and decided on a course of action that is inevitably going to lead to the tribulation period. You see the white horse going out with conquest, and then you see the black horse going out with violence and slaughter, and then you see the red horse with famine, and right now, sitting where we are in our comfort, we are looking at those things coming down the track. If God leaves us here, we're going to see things in the next year or two that we never ever dreamed possible. Could I say for you, as well as I can say for myself, that I've seen things in the last couple of years that I never dreamed I would ever see? We're living in a historical time. It's a critical time. And it's a time that God chose for you to be here and me to be here because he has a plan and a purpose for our life. And it is not to lay up for ourselves and it is not to gain territory. It is to think like Jabez and say, I am here for a reason. And my life can have historical impact. And my life can have eternal ramifications. Because in the time in which we're living, there are going to be people who are going to be reeling from the things that are going to be unleashed on this earth, and they're going to need answers. And we are here to give them answers. Some people take a kind of a dark view at the idea of the Christmas after the rapture takes place. I look for the rapture three times a year. Could come at any time, obviously. But I especially look for it on Resurrection Sunday. If the head was raised on that Resurrection Day, why not the body? And then I look for it on Pentecost. Because if the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, why not depart on Pentecost? And if it's not one of those two, then the next thing that I look to is the Feast of Trumpets. Because at the last trump, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice, the archangel, and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. To me, it really doesn't matter when it happens, as long as it comes quick. Because I'm ready. And I'm eager. But there are those who kind of take a dark review on this, as I said, and I'll just touch on a couple of things I don't think it's worth dwelling on. <clears throat> Some suggest that as Herod used the first Christmas as an, as an excuse to slaughter the children born around Bethlehem, and we read of that in Matthew 2, that this is going to be reenacted by Antichrist when he takes his place in the temple of God and unleashes that flood of persecution against the Jewish people. You can read about that with the, <coughs> excuse me, the dragon and the woman in Revelation 12, and of course the coming of Antichrist in Revelation 13. <clears throat> Some say that's going to be the last Christmas. Others look at the two prophets recorded in Revelation chapter 11. Ultimately, the two prophets are put to death after they had prophesied for 1260 days. I assume that this is going to be in the last half of the tribulation period. Their death will be shortly before the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the scripture tells us that the world is going to see them. It'll all be on television. Every news channel will be carrying it and people will be rejoicing. And it says they'll be giving gifts to one another. Some people call that the devil's Christmas. We're not too concerned with either of those what we want to look at is the last Christmas. If you will turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, where we have a record of the last Christmas. Revelation 19 shows the rejoicing of the saved and the woe of the lost. In Revelation 19, Beginning in verse 5, a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters as a sound of a mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife, that's you and I, has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. 
For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Could I ask you how much cosmetic are you adding to the bride? You know, Paul tells us in the book of Titus, chapter 2 and verse 10, that we should adorn the doctrine of God. That word adorn is cosmeto, ladies, cosmetic. How much cosmetic am I adding to the bride? Verse 9, he said, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And immediately linked to all of this beauty and glory and rejoicing and celebration, the wonderful wedding. Verse 14 says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns, diadems. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. The armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's you and I. Hope you're taking riding lessons. I have a friend in Australia who says it's not going to be white horses. That's just language of accommodation. It's going to be white Harleys. I don't think so. Verse 15, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All of this obviously relating to the second advent. Why would I relate the second advent as the last Christmas? Well, because of a prophecy. A prophecy that tied together the first and the last. A prophecy, as it were, uh, and we often see in looking at the prophets of the Old Testament as they looked forward, it was like they were looking at two mountaintops. And the first mountaintop was the first coming, and the second mountaintop was the second coming, but they didn't see everything in between. The church age was a mystery to them. It was not revealed to them. And so in this one prophecy, the prophet Isaiah ties it all together, a very familiar passage, which I am sure you all know, in Isaiah 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, that talks of his humanity, Unto us a son is given, his deity, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Both the first and the second coming are anticipated, and the first is not fulfilled until the second. You know, one of the reasons those people who cried out Hosanna as Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the donkey a few days later cried out crucify him is because they had expectations. And their expectation based on their inability to distinguish between first and second advent, and I say that not uh, in a scornful way, we wouldn't have done any better. But they thought he would come into Jerusalem, proclaim himself king, drive the Romans into the sea and establish the kingdom. Could I just encourage you, be careful when God doesn't live up to your expectations. When God doesn't live up to your expectations, it's because our expectations are too small. His plan, His purpose is so very much greater. The last Christmas, I believe, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> is going to begin with the marriage supper or the wedding supper of the Lamb in the establishment of the kingdom, and I believe that it's going to be celebrated for a thousand years. A thousand year celebration. You know, in the old days, they did weddings right. When they had a wedding, the wedding would last at least a week. Sometimes it would go longer. Um, <clears throat> I kind of have this feeling with Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. It's probably my favorite holiday because up until they came up with Black Friday, it was not commercialized. Now, of course, they found a way to even get everybody 
running into stores and you see videos of women fighting over things like toilet paper or whatever it is they're fighting over because it's cheap. It's marked off 10 cents. It's crazy. The last place I would go on Black Friday is to a store. I'd stay home. Let them fight it out. I'll gladly pay the extra 10 cents for whatever it is that they're saving. But while the ancient weddings were celebrated for a week, the, the marriage supper of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe, is going to go on throughout the entire duration of the millennium. That's just my idea. Take a week in our terminology and put it into a thousand years if you prefer. It's going to be something, however long it is, that is going to remind us of what we're doing this Christmas. I go back to what Chad asked. Are we celebrating this Christmas with our eye on his, first of all, rapture of the church, but ultimately, second coming to this earth to put an end to the evil, to put an end to the wickedness, to put an end to the sorrow, the suffering, the affliction, the broken hearts, the tears, and to establish his kingdom in answer to a prayer that I hope we still pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One day it will be. Will you and I let it be true in our hearts now? That is the question. Let him reign in your hearts. Give him his rightful place. Celebrate his coming, the previous and the future, as we gather together with friends and family, children, grandchildren at this Christmas time. May God bless us to have a Christmas that is a true celebration of our Savior. Let's close in prayer. Father, I do thank you. How can even words of thanks be enough? They can't. To say thank you is so easy, and sometimes we say it so glibly. Father, we can only say thank you with our life. We can only say thank you in a true sense by our surrender and submission to your word and to your will and to your plan and purpose for our life and to the call of the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and let him follow after. How I pray, Father, as we celebrate Christmas this year, we will truly get into the spirit of Christmas, the humility of our Savior, his sacrifice on our behalf, the glory that will ultimately be revealed as he returns to take his place on the throne of his kingdom. Father, I pray for each and every one who has come this morning because we represent a lot of people. We represent fathers, mothers, grandfathers, grandmothers, children, grandchildren, friends, relatives, both near and distant. And Father, with each of those connections, there's an opportunity for ministry. How much of the love of Christ shines through in our relationships to one another. How I pray that it will be evermore until the day we stand in his presence. And Father, for this wonderful church that has such a marvelous heritage, how I pray that you will keep your hedge of protection around them. How I pray that God the Holy Spirit will strengthen, encourage, comfort them as they continue to stand true to your word. And then Father, that your choice, the man that you have chosen, would be led to come here to stand in this pulpit to open your word, to preach the truth, to edify souls through the sound doctrines of the word of God. Let these things all come to pass, Father, in your perfect time, your perfect way, according to your perfect purpose. Father, keep the heritage of this church shining bright. We ask these things in the mighty and glorious and gracious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That's it, folks. No song and dance. No more commercials. <laughs>